Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we have another very special twofer. I'll tell you about the second guest here in a second, but the first up, we finally get to hear from Cy Kernan of The Fix. Doesn't it feel like that should have happened years ago by now? It does to me. It's been in the making for a long time. Turns out the timing is really good because if you don't know, The Fix put out a brand new album last week called Every Five Seconds, which is fantastic. I don't know if you've been paying attention. I know that their peak period from the 80s is so, so good, but the last couple of albums that they've done, this one and Beautiful Friction from a few years ago, are equally on par with what you think of when you think of peak fix. So we talk all about that album in here, obviously. This, in fact, part two of this episode is with the producer of that album and many other things, fix and otherwise, Stephen W. Taylor. So I'll tell you more about that later. Anyway, the fix are about to go back out on tour next week, I think it is. So check fix online for details. If you've never seen the fix before live, they're one of the most satisfying live acts there is because you know all the songs, you love them, they're not so overplayed that you're sick of any of them, and the new stuff is equally as good. So, and Psy and the rest of the band are still in tip-top shape. They're excellent. So we get into some of the stories too of some of the some of their other hits. I purposely didn't go after like the super obvious ones. So we talk about some of the lesser known hits, lesser known songs that mean something to me. Obviously we talk a lot about Rupert Hine because Rupert had a big impact on their career and he was a beautiful man who came on our podcast a couple of times too. Now, I am a little bummed out because this was kind of in line with promoting the album and everything else, we didn't get to go a full hour. We went about 40, 45 minutes. Wasn't exactly what I had in mind, so I didn't get to go quite as deep as I wanted. And because of the way things worked out, it had to be recorded on my phone, not on Zoom. So I didn't get the full Psy experience that I was hoping for, but that's okay. I think we got through a lot of good stuff in the time that we had. I'm gonna tell you more about Steven Taylor later when we get to that part, but for now, Enjoy Sai. He called me from his home in Southern California. First of all, I want, I mean, we should talk about Rupert because as, as I was saying, you and I have been talking about doing this since before he passed away. Were you, I assume you two were in close contact for the whole time, right? Yeah, he was um, a, a true friend, uh, a mentor, a visionary, and someone who the, I really do owe my career to. So, yeah. Yeah. um, if I didn't speak to him, you know, we spoke definitely, if, you know, a few times a year, but we would be emailing constantly and right. just through the fourth dimension, I would think of him every day. Like, sure. what would Rupert do? What would sure. Rupert do would be one of those questions. So, yeah, absolutely. He, um, so he and I were discussing this when I, I had him on a second time to do kind of a track by track deep dive of breach the beach. And, to me, there are very few, well, you and you, Rupert and The Fix are one of those great rock and roll instances where band meets producer and brings out the best in each other. And I've always wondered if you felt like you would have established yourselves like, you know, as well as you did. Granted, you've made other, plenty of other albums without Rupert. But if you had been, would you have been able to establish yourself and your unique sound without him working with you to make it possible? I don't think so. I mean, yeah. truthfully, the, the the collision and the combination 
um, a who he was, the energy he brought, um, the fact that he had Stephen Taylor in his as his right hand man at the mixing desk, um, the time at that period where there was a very exciting time in the technological sense of things. There were lots mm-hmm. of interesting trickeries and digital yeah. ways of recording things just starting to happen, and the the opening in music i think no i don't think we would have def- we wouldn't have connected with that sound and that crisp clean yes. crystal yes know? it's interesting you say crisp and clean he and i were kind of having a friendly debate about this because i had always thought of, thought of the uh fixes sound especially early on as being almost a little icy or frosty and he said you know i prefer to think of it as clean <laughs> because it, he was saying the same thing you were saying, like, you know, I, I wasn't into reverb. I wasn't into sound effects. I wasn't into a lot of drum machines. I wanted to be crisp and clean. And he applied that methodology to you guys at the time when you were most ready, I guess, to receive it. And together you make this amazing statement. And it's interesting that you mentioned Steven Taylor, because to me, honestly, Cy, the last two albums, Beautiful Friction and this one every five seconds, are the most akin to what I think most people think of when they think of peak fix, you know, that peak sound. Yeah. These last two albums are as strong as anything you would have put out at that time. And I bet Steven might be the connected tissue because he was there in the beginning too, right? Oh, oh, very much so. I mean, he, his sense of, firstly, um, Steven is a huge musical power in his own sense he was like a choral master from cambridge university so he understands voicing temperament um balance tonic all those things that you never really think of in rock and roll but when you're mixing and you're placing the harmonic balance to things and the way a reverb would work or an echo Mm -hmm. or a harmonic he's Mm -hmm. the king of that and he's been able to sift and bring this kind of sheen. He's like the guy that cuts the diamond. We're a diamond in the rough and he cuts it so that it fits. And interestingly enough, Rupert's production company name was Gestalt. Uh Some of the parts. And I think very much in the way that the fix resonates and works, it's the sum of the parts. Yeah. Yeah. That is so true. Okay. Let's talk about some of the, first of all, what, where did every five seconds come from? You probably get asked that all the time. Okay, every, What's every five seconds? Well, it's just, it's just starting, actually, because it's the new campaign. So every five seconds is a line from the song Lighthouse. There's mm-hmm. a line called Looking for Love Every Five Seconds. Ah, and yes.
And in the sense of, you know, when you're, when you're in between mindfulness and mindlessness, between the high of joy and the sinking feeling of despair, it almost happens every five seconds. Unless you're continually balancing your, your existence with yeah. a purer sense, you can fall into the pit. And the world today is in great need of knowing what to hang on to, what to cling yes. on to. There's almost like a sense that this pendulum that was yeah. swinging left and right was hanging from a cord, but the cord has been detached. Yeah. Yeah. And so every five seconds to me just represents that sort of, right, getting rid yeah. of the butterflies in your stomach and Good. honing in on stilling the candle. It's so interesting you say that. I only just got the new album yesterday, so I've been listening to it on a loop. And I think Lighthouse might be my favorite al song on the album. But I hadn't pieced together the, the reference of the five seconds relating to the album, the, to the name of the album. So now I've got to go back and do that again. There's yeah, yeah some... good. Well, it's in... Go ahead. Go ahead. Now, I was going to say that, so what you, the backstory of Lighthouse is, is that it's a song that we wrote eons ago, like in really? the 1999, 97. And we played it live a couple of times and it caught fire with some of the fans. There were a couple of early recordings on YouTube, but we never ever recorded it. And the, then the fans started their own chat page and it, they named it Lighthouse after the enigmatic nature of this tune. Right. And we forgot about it. And then a couple of years ago, we went, you know, we really should take a stab at this track. I just felt that the, the seasoned aspect of it felt like life, we were all in a storm and we all needed a lighthouse to mm -hmm. pull us in. Mm -hmm. And so I thought this is the time to give birth to this track now. And so we went in and um, we've been working with Beautiful Friction. We worked with Nick Jackson as producer and still went on to mix with Steve Taylor. This mm -hmm. album, we ended up having production and um, mixing with Steve, but we ended up doing two extra tracks with Nick Jackson and Lighthouse is one of those. And he, he brings out the progressive nature in the band. So we yeah. put out our full prog stops on that one. Yes. <laughs> That's it. Yes. We should also talk about the new single too, Woman of Flesh, or one of them, I should say, but all the three singles are great. I'm going to ask you more, but Woman of Flesh and Blood, specifically because Jamie sings seen lead, which has only ever happened one of the time that I know of. What 
Now, yeah. I, is it? Does he just put? This, yeah, I imagine you guys in the studio and him just kind of pushing you aside. You're like, stand back, sorry, I got this. How does it? Who decides yeah. these things? Because that doesn't happen very often. Well, yeah. Well, he, you know, he came in with his version. He came in with the song. Really? And yeah, and he, and he, you know, he'd been inspired by events in his, you know, in the drama of his life. Uh-huh. And he sang this song, and we were, and the way that he sang it and the nature just fit the lyric. And he, he has yeah. such a beautiful voice that it was almost like, to me, it's lightning when the, the guy in the cars sang that mm. Benjamin, what's his name? Or it's like, had it that drive. moment. Yes. Yeah, when, when Benjamin Orr stepped forward, this is like Jamie's Benjamin moment to me. And, he, and then th- there's a moment in the song where it just needs this kind of schizophrenic, Mm. madman to come in and that's the bit i took it over i was yes. like this is going to be great like like the bat out of hell <laughs> yeah. stage version where there's two guys and yeah. it was the perfect vehicle for that so that's where that song came from you know i agree what's your so i've been lucky i've been able to see you live a few times in the last few years in fact i'll tell you a quick story i've always liked the fix but it was you guys don't don't be upset. You weren't. It wasn't at the top of mind where I was like buying albums necessarily. It was more like if they came on the radio, I was okay, but I wasn't heavily invested yeah. until about uh, about twenty years ago, fifteen years ago. I live in Denver, and you guys came through and you played this little bar that's called the Grizzly Rose, I believe, and it normally caters to like hard rock and heavy metal bands. And I was it was yeah. like a Wednesday night, and I thought. You know, I've I've always liked the fix, but not enough. I should go see them live and see how I feel. I loved it, and there were only about thirty people there, <laughs> and and it was because it yeah. was a really odd location. And I was there, and I thought I know every one of these songs. I love these songs, and I've been hooked ever since. And went back and bought every album, and been connected ever since. Do you remember this show? Do you remember what I'm talking about? I remember. I remember that period. There was a period yeah. where we were kind of like. Wallowing in between management and mm. you know the agent was like we were just kind of lost focus for a while, but we we kept touring. Yes, and you know we just needed to put keep some a grease on the wheels, so yes. we kept touring. And some of those real rock and roll experiences where you go down to the gritty gritty yeah. aspects of it, it's almost where I call it the romantic failings of sure. rock and roll. It's, <laughs> it's where you really get get back to your roots. Yeah. And it's all blood, sweat, and tears. You're there, obviously, because you love doing it. Uh-huh. And hopefully that comes across the audience. If you're still there or you're, like, shipwrecked on a rock. <laughs> and you're still, like, waiting for that Robinson Crusoe moment, waiting for the ship to come back in. Yes. But, um, yeah, so those, those, those are good days, you know. Yeah. That's where the songs yeah. kind of kept us going. And then yeah. we... We grew, we grew up from that, and then since our new management has really kind of turned it around for us, we're back at UTA, great agency, and they're like the human aspect of the story, and we're like the band that never goes away. Yeah. Our songs keep getting used in commercials, and then we've mm-hmm. caught this vein with um, a lot of young kids are starting to mm-hmm. pick up on us, which is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we've consolidated a fan base. I think also we lost touch with the audiences because our audience was seeking more comfortable seats and, Ooh, yeah. and a more comfortable stage time. So now we've, yes. now we've found that vein that if you 
if you play a nice theatre, you're more likely to sell show, show tickets at 8.30 rather than some grisly bar at midnight. That is true. That's interesting you say that because every time, that one time, that first time was the anomaly. I've seen you four or five times since then, and it's always in much bigger venues. And you're right, comfortable ones with the seats. And one of the times was even a street fair here in Denver, downtown. Oh, yeah. On the street, it was for like the rock and roll, uh, the, the Hard Rock Cafe or something like that. Anyway, the point yeah, you mentioned yeah, yeah, all of this, that. and I saw you with the Romantics a couple years ago. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that was a big one, yeah. That was a great one. So the point of me mentioning all this is that you guys have been, you've reestablished, as you said, yourselves as a very lively and go-to and vibrant live act. And you've got to balance this between playing all the hits everyone wants, but also paying tribute to these fantastic later albums that you're playing, that you put out. So when you go on tour, what's going to make it into the playlist from, for instance, this album? Well, what do you think? Yeah, well, it's we're, we're going to rehearse up um, the majority of them and test a few of them out oh, every good. night. Good. Uh, we were out. Um, we were out before Christmas, before COVID ground the tour. The last three shows got cancelled because I, I got was COVID. Going to one of them. Up yep. to that point, yep. yeah, we we did twenty five shows and we were able to test out as we were releasing. We had Wake Up with the first single we released. So good. Um, we started to play that, and then we saw how the new material was working. So we're excited to try a few of them, Good. Um, and then we'll see which ones work best. But I think out of the, the kind of catalog that we have, we can always tell the story of every man and the kind of social breakdown that we're all mm -hmm. experiencing, and then the, the search for some kind of emancipation and mm -hmm. higher-minded quest that we should all be on. Like We're all looking for a myth, a believable myth. Mm -hmm. That we could at least, okay, if we're kidding ourselves, well, then let's kid ourselves gracefully mm -hmm. and make something work for everyone rather than just shit and piss everywhere. Excuse my French. But. No, it's so true. And, okay, I, this brings me to something I was going to ask you about anyway. To me, no one sees the world like you do, Sai, and no one describes <laughs> the world they're looking at like you do. No one. No one in rock history has ever written lyrics or talked the way you do. And I, I hope this isn't too personal of a question. 
I know that Buddhism was a big thing for you. I don't know if it still is. I assume it is because I think you went to the Dalai Lama, played a concert for him. Or anyway, you and Rupert, I believe, were yeah. bonding on this. Do you have a foundational philosophy? Is it Buddhism? Is it Christianity? Is it atheism? I'm trying to figure out where you come from. Well, it's kind of it's layered, really. That's I what mean, I wondered. I yeah, I grew up with an Irish Catholic father and a Jewish atheist mother. Oh wow! Which is, that's a kind of a combination for some family discussions right there. <laughs> and so, and so I was, you know, I was raised Catholic, did the altar boy thing, but mm-hmm. on my, you know, with my mother, kind of, my mother kind of laughing at the pointlessness of it all mm-hmm. as we'd march off on Sunday. Then at my young kind of young adulthood, I discovered the Dalai Lama and the teachings of that. And it seemed to fit this space that nothing else had touched. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't so much a religion, more of a just of a enjoying the emptiness and mm-hmm. draining the kind of old teachings. And then from there, you kind of set through life, not wanting to argue with everyone, but just observe what's coming at you. And I guess the viewpoint of life is, you know, sometimes you can have the binoculars on your face the wrong way mm-hmm. and things seem very far away. And other times they're too close, yeah. too close to focus, too proud to notice. Other yeah. times they're too far to care, too far to yeah. care or too far to be bothered. Um, so it's a kind of a, um, it's just, you just have to find out what interests yeah. you really and really, I'm trying to get into things as a feeling. Sure. I think I'm more instinctive sure. and thoughtful about mm-hmm. things. That's how I like to see things. That makes sense. Um, these last few years have been rough on everybody. And uh, following you on social media and stuff like that, you always have a, an interesting take on things. And I was listening back to Beautiful Friction and specifically the song What God on there. What God does God believe in? What God believes in me? What God minds over matter? What God matters to me? What man's imagination moves still? Stagnation between his life and death. Save me from the things I want. Kill me, give me what I need. Save me from the things I want. Give me, give me what I need. What God does God believe in? What God believes in? And I, and it, yeah. it, again, it's feeding this curiosity that I have of where, you know, where is size true north? What, where is he, where is he grounded in? Do you, and I'm not trying to get super personal, but because you're so unique in your worldview, that's why I ask these questions. Do you, I mean, I don't know. Do you consider yourself a Christian? Do you consider yourself a spiritualist? Do you consider yourself of the earth? I consider myself a, um, a lover of the earth. Mm. I mean, I, I resonate to anyone who who is showing uh, showing me their hopeful side. There you go. Um, Ooh, I love I, the I, way you said that. Yes. 
Yeah. Just whatever gets them to that moment. And, you know, the glass is always half full mm-hmm. rather than half empty. I'm that kind of guy. And yeah. um, I, I, I like to see the other side of people's, like, you know, when you see, you know, just a happy Muslim family or a happy, mm-hmm. uh, whatever it is you're looking at, or a happy Christian family, there's, there's a kind of a, okay, there's an indoctrination there, but beyond the indoctrination is a dance. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a kind of a a myth. I keep getting back to this myth, the power mm-hmm. of myth. Yes, you do. But, you know, humans really do need a kind of a dance. We do need a band leader, a spiritual mm-hmm. band leader. And mm-hmm. we, we fought so many wars over Christianity and um, Muhammad have been at war for so long that people are turning their backs because it's just too much for them to sure. deal with. And then the, and it's the capitalist. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it doesn't make money. Well, it war makes money, but it doesn't mm-hmm. make for a happy childhood or it doesn't make for a happy world. And yeah. so fear is now, the, fear seems to be the economic driver right now. And hope has taken a back seat, but yeah. you know, yeah. just have to keep just glinting something in the eye. I'll look at anyone in the eye as long as they're uh, they're open. Yeah, I love that. I love the way you said that. Um, Okay, I wanted to, if you don't mind, I wanted to ask you about a couple of older classic fix songs that I've always liked, not the obvious ones, but ones where I'm curious where they came from. To me, I know Secret Separation is one of your biggest songs. It's a real outlier. It feels like a much more traditional, I don't know, pop song, I guess is the right word, than the than some of the other things. One thing leads to another and Saved by Zero and Are We Ourselves. These are, those are, those come from such a single mind where a secret separation, there's something universal about that. Are you, do, am I way off yeah. when you wrote it? Were you thinking no, something no, different? You, well, I, to, to, to be honest, the, the lyric was written by Jeanette, Bruce oh. Hines' girlfriend at the time, who she was very instrumental. She was the one who told Rupert to listen to our cassette mm. and who got him to come and see us and work with us. So she wrote that lyric in such a, a way where we were, I was really getting into the whole Buddhist um, mm-hmm. culture at that point and the mindfulness, and we shared our first manager, Jeff Dukes, was the Dalai Lama's press agent in mm. London, and Jeff 
and Jeanette were very close and Rupert was in there. Mm-hmm. She had a way of talking about astral projection and otherworldly energies that no one else captured. And mm-hmm. so she presented me with this lyric and I was living in New York with Jamie and he was kind of going through this almost country pop structure. Oh, interesting. Chord thing. Yeah. You know, and there was always, there was a bit of, there was a bit of a Bowie thing that he had going yeah. oh, no, like, da, la, la. there's a Bowie song that always hits me when he plays those chords. And we just sort of were playing that around with those lyrics and him in that style. And it came out. And then we went back, took that to Rupert and the rest of the guys back in London a couple of months later. And we started jamming around and Rupert mm. said, maybe you just need to sweeten the chorus just a little bit more right there. Mm. And boom, out came a kind of what I think is a quintessential pop song. But you're right. Absolutely. Out of the, out of the out of different tradition than we were used to. Yeah, it just, it like, I don't know what the, the best word I can think of is universal. It just feels more like a universal pop song than some of your other stuff does, and I've always wondered why. I went out with a girl in college who put the, a, li- a live version of that song on a mixtape to me, and I listened to that over and over and over again, and that was like my first, wow, the fix are good moment. 1994, I think it was. Anyway, good stuff. Um, yeah. That's a big wedding. People play that at their weddings. Yeah. It would sound funny that people are talk, talking about a separation at a wedding. <laughs> I know. It's like, uh, it just feels like good. They don't want to hear the, listen to the lyrics, you know? Yeah, it's um, pre, the prenup. That's right. <laughs> um, okay, I want to ask you about Built for the Future, too. one of my favorite songs especially that's not of those first few peak albums and um i love the way that the harmony goes in the chorus it's a little bit different too what what were you thinking about when you wrote that song i was kind of thinking about the battle between nikola tesla and edison seriously the way (laughs) yeah things like that the way that you know great inventions just came and fell by the wayside because of money mm-hmm. and just choices, fork, forks in the road. And, you know, when humans have this ability to transform magic into reality mm-hmm. through intelligence, it's a, AI has been with us for, it's not, it's natural intelligence before we get to AI. And so mm-hmm. there's a kind of a, a ghost in the machine Ooh. that, if you don't really get yourself in and know how to read the spell and summon yourself, you kind of miss the train. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's what I was thinking is that we're living in times now or back then we were living in times where things seem completely pointless or why are we doing this? And it was like, try and see the future. You can only see now the future only exists in the now that you're thinking about it. So mm-hmm. there has to be a kind of a projection. I love it. that. Um, that's what that's about. I got it. Uh, I wanted to ask you, going back to Rupert and your kind of alignment with him, when you guys were, when he was brought in to do the Better Off Dead soundtrack, you're on there, you know, with one look. I think he was even maybe uh, calling himself Think Man. I think for that one, I think it was. Anyway, yeah. what was the collaboration there? Were you guys put? Was he put on assignment to come up with the whole soundtrack, and he brought you in for one or two things, or did you guys partner yeah. collaborate a little heavier on that? He was brought in to do the whole um, the soundtrack, and again, yeah. G- uh, Jeanette wrote the lyric to that song, and oh. probably a few others on there, but. And so she said, Rupa, I want this to be a duet with you and Sai. So he went, yes, mom. And uh, <laughs> we, we, were, we were in and out of recording. I think it was either Walkabout or Phantoms, one of those albums. Mm-hmm. So we were in and out of the studio whilst he was interjecting his soundtrack work. Um, and so we, we did the duet. Okay. And interestingly enough, I just, as, as a sort of a tip of the hat to both of them, because... Jeanette, both Jeanette and Rupert have passed, God rest mm-hmm. their souls. I've done a cover of, of, I've done a re-recording of that song. Really? In a very different way. Yeah, in a very different way, but I'm just finishing it now, right, as it Ooh. happens. So. Where is it going to end up? I'm hoping it's going to end up on a fixed release that comes out next year. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. I love that song, that movie, the sound, all of it. So I've always wondered... Yeah, you got put in there. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Um, okay, I have to ask. Whenever, so whenever I we I have an interview, uh, I send it out to our Patreon supporters. Let them know who I'm talking to. If they want to submit questions, they can. Um, this was kind of short notice, but Dan Phillips wanted to know about the uh, how it must have felt working with Tina Turner. You probably get asked this a lot, and I think the way he phrased this question is really interesting to me because you seem like a guy that doesn't get phased too often. You seem like a guy that feels pretty confident in their in their place in the world, their place in music. When they walk into a room, they're not always feeling insecure. But when you're in the room with Tina Turner, are you still able to feel that way, or do you sort of like, wow, this is a legend. We this is a whole different ball game. What we're doing right now. 
Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. She's an arresting energy. Um, again, at the time of in my life when I met her, she, I mean, she was very um, deep practicing Buddhism and she was very, mm-hmm. she had a huge energy, but c- controlled it in a very serene way. So it was an amazing life lesson to see how she carried herself. Mm-hmm. And we we became very close over the sessions and her voice and she told me about how she likes to stand with her legs, you know, so it relaxes the stomach muscles and sinks really? down there and power projection. So I learned a lot of, about projection from her. Wow. And uh, she also told, told me about her. She had a doctor singer who was like an Ayurvedic kind of go-to health guru. And oh. she turned me on to him. And so through him, I, learn some very sort of supplementary that is great. techniques to keep the throat good. So she's amazing soul and really warm and real. You know, sometimes you find yourself having that painful fake smile when there's some, yeah. you know, and you're like <laughs> trying to keep your face frozen, your face is aching and you're trying to, she, she, she just kind of makes you relax. And you're just speaking from your kind of calm chakra straight away. She pulls yeah. it out of you and you're like, ah, oh. <laughs> like it's like having a conversation with a, in, in a warm bath straight away. I it's love like, that. It's beautiful. I love that. Person. When I was the first time I interviewed Rupert and we were just going through his whole career, we were talking about working on that Tina Turner album. And I was just say, I was saying to him, I assumed that she was, you know, listening to a lot of soul music at the time. And he said, Oh no, 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 no. And these were his words. Tina likes white man rock. And that's yeah. how, and she was listening to you. She was listening to the fix. And that's when the idea for better be good to me and having you in the video and all that kind of stuff came from. And I thought, who would have ever guessed that Tina Turner was, was such a fix fan at that time and not, yeah. you know, Al Green or Otis Redding, something you might have guessed. That must be right. mind blowing for you. Yeah, it really was. It was. We were very honored, and I, you know, just knowing that you're going to be involved in this iconic person's um, work, it was great. It was a really, and then the whole thing of being in the video, which was all extras, yeah. but it's like people have seen us more as much yeah. as in that video than they have in our own videos in lots of yeah. ways. So it was a great journey, and. Um, so we're honored to have been there, and uh, yeah. you're really good. Yeah, it's a real compliment to you. Um, okay, so when I, when Rupert and I were talking about um, your approach to the world or your, you know, point of view or whatever, he <laughs> he referred to you as shroom head, implying <laughs> that's all I'm going to say about that, <laughs> and, uh, implying that maybe mushrooms or psychedelics or whatever play a big part in the broadening of Cy Kernan's mind. Could that have been true? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I mean, during the making of, you know, Shuttered Room was kind of London boy, um, mm-hmm. you know, dark, dark gray skies, then reached the beach tour. We're out and we're out in Texas and we're out in Arizona and we discovered these little wonderful <laughs> peyote and all these kind of mushroom things just became my drug of choice. I just yeah. love the mind expanding thing Absolutely. of what it did to writing. So I would actually take them when I was on stage for a while and I felt like I was kind of performing in another dimension. 
Um, it was almost like quasi-religious experience. Where yeah. There was one point where we, we did the day at the green with the police in San Francisco in 1983. There's like 80,000 people out there. The police, madness to fix. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was a moment during our set where the, I thought it was people throwing their souls in the air. There was the whole sea of people. There were these white, these, actually it was a food fight. Oh, really? Going on. And there were these paper plates, thousands of paper plates in the air. And it was a quasi-religious moment. But the way that I saw it, and I know Rupert, because he was up in the gantry looking down, taking photos. He came down and either he was shrooming or saw the next same thing. He said, that was quasi-religious, son. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was like, bowled over because I thought maybe I was the only one hallucinating that, but no, he saw it too. So we shared our sh- shroomery <laughs> at the point. Um, you know, and now people are everyone, everyone's out there doing their ayahuasca this and ayahuasca uh-huh. that. Well, uh-huh. I tell you, I, I, I've ayahuasca'd my socks quite a lot. These. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> That's great. Okay, I got to ask you about Underwood. I mean, um, you, uh, much yeah. like I think Depeche Mode and Anton Corbin, the fix's relationship with George Underwood is something that put, puts you guys in a certain place, a certain stature too, especially his connection with David Bowie, who we all know is kind of a, was a big influence for you. One thing I'm always curious, when, you select, yeah. when he does your album covers, does, do you go into like his workroom and look at just random paintings that he's made and think, I like that one, let's make that the cover? Or does he commission these things for you based on a title? What's the dynamic there? How do you two work together? He, yeah, well, the first time around was, first thing I'll interject there was when I was a kid, a young teenager looking at Ziggy Stardust cover, yeah. my favorite album at the time. I always thought to myself, whenever we make it, if we ever make it, if I ever make it, I'm going to have this guy do our cover because I just loved the vibe of that. Oh, uh, yeah. And this was even before George Underwood was painting. It was just like a photograph yeah. that he styled. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want him to, and he did. So we, we gave him the music and just had him listen to it for weeks on end for the Reach the Beach cover. Mm-hmm. And then we also did that for Phantoms where he would just go into his own mind and deliver and we we just felt that his artistic interpretation of what we were trying to do musically the collision without any direction Mm -hmm. from us Mm -hmm. would be something like the third side to the story and i think when you see the iconic structure of reach the beach it really connected with people in an amazing way and so that tradition we've kept going and so now we we just commission him to provide us with an image that he feels works with the music that's already in his kind of gallery, mental gallery. Yeah. Interesting. I've always wondered if Reach the Beach was the name of the album ahead of time, or was that the name of that painting? And that's what you named the album? What came first? Yeah, the title came first. Okay. And then I, Adam, Adam said to me, you know, because we used to go to this beach in the south of france every year and we always mm-hmm. used to say that august august was the beginning of a new year for us because you know the the summer holidays would be you'd come back from the summer holidays a new person and so when he was married to my sister 
way back in the day, we'd come back from this beach, so we'd be going to that place. Mm. And so the title came up. He said, Reach the Beach, and I wrote the song from, That's great. from his title. And then we That's came great. back, and then George worked the title and came up with his image of it. I love it. Uh, I have always wondered, I read somewhere, and it may have been in the liner notes of your greatest hits, I don't remember where I read this, that going overboard was at the last minute taken off of that album because you or the band felt that there were already too many nautical themed songs like Reach the Beach. And so going overboard, implying there's water involved, there's already too many songs that deal with water or relate to water. Is that true? Am I totally misremembering something? It, maybe somebody said that at some point, but I don't think I was. Um, we made the decision on that. It was just maybe in the running order of how things were flowing. I mean, listening back to it, the lyric of that was always a bit of a ruse. Mm. Um, and I think maybe it was just a little bit more lightweight mm. in lyric. There's a certain humor to it that we just felt we didn't want to have as an A-side or an album album, and it, and it turned up as a B-side somewhere, which was fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so I okay. think, um, I, you know, there were, there were, we did write a lot of nautical terms definitely back then. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't, it was just, okay. I spent a lot of time at the beat, a lot of time. Of course you do. <laughs> Who wouldn't? <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Uh, also, I had William Whitman on here a while back too. And we talked about his oh, production yeah. work on Ink and everything. And he has some mixed feelings about that album. I, I think if I remember correctly, um, it got kind of taken out of his hands or it, he felt like the demos were better. Um, where do you, how do you look back on that period? Was it time to get away? Not get away. That sounds rude to Rupert. But was it time to branch out and try something different? What was the thinking there behind hiring William? Yeah, well, what happened was we were on MCA and then um, Irving Azoff left uh, right before 
right at the end of the walkabout period, and William was um, a producer, A&R man at BMG. And he came to us and said, hey, would you think about switching labels? And so we thought about it and we, you know, we saw that Irving Azoff had left and we thought, well, let's, they made us an enormous offer to shift mm-hmm. labels. Mm-hmm. And William really came along and started turning up a lot of shows. And it was just at a time where I started writing songs on guitar. So there was a shift in the style of writing going on. And mm-hmm. then the way that uh, we just felt we wanted to experiment as to what we would sound like differently. And I was sort of jamming a lot more with Jamie, learning guitar and mm-hmm. just going in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. And so we did. They, they BMG signed us and we did the Calm Animals record, which is a fantastic super. I love rock. that album. William yeah. Whitman, yeah, William Whitman Project. He really produced... What I loved about William was that he made us rehearse and write and write and rehearse. And write. So we really knew everything we were going to do when right. we got to the studio. It was really, really well controlled. Inc. was at a time where we had a different manager. Alan Kovac came in as a manager and he was trying to buy us back from BNG to go back mm-hmm. to MCA to be on one of his labels. And he was a real horse trader. Mm-hmm. He did anything he could just to get the album back. Mm-hmm. To, onto MCA and so mm-hmm. the project that we had with William ended up being bastardized a little bit with some outside writing that was I was writing with a few other guys um, mm-hmm. that Alan suggested would give us that missing hit or whatever mm-hmm. and I kind of mm-hmm. did it with a bit of with hindsight I should never have really gone down that road but I did mm-hmm. no real regret but it was a bit of a a butchered record in many ways, yeah. but there's some great songs on on that record. But cohesively, it's a little. Um, I can see that. Well, how much frank, of the how much is the Nazis? Frank. One of my favorite fix songs was that a product of this outside writing that you were doing. Yeah, it was. Okay. Um, there's a guy yeah. called Scott Scott Cutler. Um, hmm. He wrote "Torn" for Natalie oh, and Bruglia. Sure. Uh, and I was a he was a buddy of mine at the time, so we wrote that song. And you know, it was song. a great lyric, and he yeah. he really knew how to push me. And we got some a different kind of chord structure together, and he pushed that in his sort of world and. Yeah, it was great. And the guys in the band were all testament to them. They were like, yeah, this is great. Let's do it. Good. Good. Um, it's just when we got to things like falling in love, song like that, that was kind mm-hmm. of a, mm-hmm. a kind of a buyout for Kovac. I could a see buyout that. track. And 
Yeah. Okay. Strange. Um, okay. Two more questions real quick. Number one, um, did you know when you wrote Saved by Zero that you were going to be asked for the rest of your life what that means? You don't have to get into what it means. There's plenty of descriptions of you giving the description online. But did you know that you were on to something that people were just going to be baffled by from now on? Well, it's like once an enigma, always an enigma, darling. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, okay, I get it. Last question. Dan Brown, when he plays the bass, every time I see you guys live, he doesn't move. He's got his hat on and his shades. Is that like a running joke? Is that where it's most comfortable for him? Why does he do that? It's so funny. Well, he's an animated frontman. He's like a machine back there. Yeah, you know, his static stature is really draws people in. Yeah, it does. And he kind of ha- he has an amazing presence just from stillness, which I love. True. Um, he used to be the guy that I would, you know, like fake strangle on stage, <laughs> or we would have a connection where I would, I'd sort of have that paranoid Dali turn yeah. my head, stare, at, and he'd look at me and catch me. He's very intuitive to my moves, and lyrically it. as a bass player, he's he's very intuitive to the melody as well. So, yeah, awesome good player. Plus, good. plus you don't want to see him dance. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. I'm sure you're right. Well, good. Cy, I have been trying to make this happen with us for years, and I'm so glad we did because the new album is fantastic. Everything you guys have been doing lately, especially, is so good. You're on a real winning streak. Thank you for talking with me. It was a true honor. Thank you so much, John. I really enjoyed it too. And uh, good luck chopping that into something. <laughs> All right, there you have it. Cy Kernan. Uh, again, every five seconds is the new album, and it is so, so good. Check it out, even if you just have to stream it or something. Um, but do because it's excellent. And as I said, I equally like their last album, Beautiful Friction. In fact, this is the title track from that album. And tell me if this song doesn't remind you a little bit of Crowded House's Weather With You. There's something about this kind of elliptical guitar uh, riff that reminds me of that song. And anyone who knows me and listens to this knows how much I love that song, that band, Neil and Tim, etc., etc. So I wanted to give you a little hint of what was on Beautiful Friction as well because it's great. Now, the second part of this conversation is with the producer of this new album, Every Five Seconds, the great Stephen W. Taylor. And if you don't know, Stephen primarily is one of the greatest mixers of the last 40 years, 45 years. He worked alongside Rupert very closely for a lot of that time. They were sort of a pair, producer and mixer. Well, obviously, with the loss of Rupert, Rupert was not involved in this project, but Stephen was. And so we get into his relationship with The Fix over time and especially working on this new album. What's cool, though, is that he works very closely with other people that we get to hear from as well, like Kate Bush. What's funny is we did this conversation maybe two weeks ago and in just less than two weeks, actually. And just in that time, of course, she's blown up because she's gone viral Thanks to Stranger Things, which is great because we all love Kate. We want her to get popular again. We love that. So we talk about his work with Kate the last 20 years or so, 15 years, whatever it's been. And then we also get into other people like Howard Jones, the Lords of the New Church, 
make an appearance in here. Uh, I purposely didn't want to ask about the people that we had already sort of talked about with Rupert. Okay? So there's a lot. I mean, I had a huge list and we got through maybe a third of it. But there's a ton of other people in here that are really fun to talk about. And uh, and he puts out a couple of he's put out a couple of beautiful kind of ambient solo albums that are also interesting, and uh, and he does like visuals for concerts as well. It's crazy. Anyway, Stephen's done a lot of cool stuff. At the end here, he tells a really interesting story, and his girl, well, partner Sardia, enters the picture. So if you're hearing another voice, that's what it is. All right. Anyway, he called me. He has a studio, look, kind of a residency at Real World Studios in the UK. Peter Gabriel's famous studio. That's where he called me from. First and foremost, I feel like we should talk about The Fix. Um, the new, they have been on, I feel, a really excellent winning streak the last couple of albums. Beautiful yeah. Friction was great. Every five yeah. seconds is equally as good. And I know that your partnership with them goes back and includes Rupert for a lot of these things. I've had Rupert on here twice. He right. was right. the best. What's it like working with The Fix now without Rupert? Is that, are you missing a key ingredient or do you and the band know exactly what to do to put the sound across? That's a very interesting question. I mean, yes, um, obviously I worked along with Rupert on the first four Fix albums. Mm. In fact, we started with them uh, back even before they were, I don't know if you can see that. That's when they were the, hang on, the fix the rather fix than... fix with one X. One X, yes. <laughs> that was their first single we recorded in 81. So we, we stayed working as, very much as a team. You know, it felt like Rupert and myself and the band just really conspired to create a direction and a sound and particularly with Rupert uh, kind of leading the way with the arrangements and, you know, the vocals and uh, all that way. Um, so uh, we stuck together on those first four albums. Then we all moved on in other directions. We worked again in the mid nineties on the ink album, but just on a couple of tracks. So that didn't feel you know, because they had different people working on the album, that that felt a bit removed from where we had been. But my return to working with the Fix obviously came on Beautiful Friction, where I was um, asked to mix it. It had been produced uh, by Nick Jackson and recorded by Nick Jackson. That was an interesting take because uh, I, I hadn't felt so much involved in the creation of of the whole thing. But, you know, 10 years on, well, it wasn't 10 years on when we started uh, every five seconds. You know, more about that in a minute. But they invited me because they wanted me to, again, mix the record. They invited me down to their initial recording sessions in London to consult uh, on how it was being recorded and where it would go. Well, I, I was with them for the, for the morning while they were recording. And by lunchtime... Uh, they say, oh, come on, will you produce this record? Because <laughs> I'd obviously done something during that setup that uh, got them on board. And um, I said, absolutely. And I have to say, it didn't feel like, um, because so much time had passed, it didn't feel like Rupert was missing from the equation. 
Um, obviously, it had a, a sort of big influence on all of us in that sense. But uh, but it was a nice sort of meeting back up with the individual members of the band and an understanding of. It's like we already had a language and a, were able to have a dialogue about things without we kind of knew what we were talking about. So so it was it was a very natural sort of move back into it. And it, I have to say it felt it did feel working uh, sort of right from the start of every five seconds. It did sort of take me back to how it all felt at the beginning of uh, the shuttered room experience, just with a sort of creative experimentation and um you know obviously great songwriting from them and uh, all the rest you alluded to a second ago it having gone back further than we would have thought what did you mean by that you said a second oh, ago that um uh, you know when we started with, well yeah. when we started making uh every five seconds was in 2014 oh, and uh, really <laughs> yes We started then, and we had a lot of the material in the bag quite quickly. Mm -hmm. But it's been sort of uh, spread out over the years, and I think because the fix don't sort of they don't do what they do full time. You know, they they set up these tours, and and also there's this weird situation of them all being based here, but. The, uh, the audience is in America. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of weird um, mm-hmm. how that's happened. And they absolutely, you know, they mean very little in the UK, which is a great shame. But, um, yeah, so as I say, it was started in 2014 and worked on it sort of bit by bit, but mostly through 2014 into 2015 from time to time. Because it was funny, just after we'd started recording and getting into the recording sessions, I was asked by Kate Bush to get involved in her live show. And that kind of took me out of the picture for several months. But yes. uh, anyway, we resumed after that. Okay. And then I think in the interim, there'd been some sort of, uh, it's not like the material has been worked on endlessly and changed. It's more like they found uh, which material really suited this project and some which perhaps was best put to one side in favour of recording a couple more tunes or revisiting just some small points. So, and then the pandemic, of course, that slowed everything, everything down. So, so it has taken rather a long time for it to come together. But, uh, and I know they wanted to release it and be able to go out on tour at the same yeah. time. So, yeah. very exciting happening so soon. It is. I love yeah. them, and they. I live in Denver, Colorado, and they. They come through here uh, just about every time. So I see them most times they come through. And I, just, right. I love them. In fact, I love them more now than I did back in the 80s. In the 80s, I, I like them, but not enough to buy their records or anything. Really? Now I can't right. get enough, you know? Yes, now yes. I, now <laughs> retroactively. So, okay. Um, you mentioned Kate Bush. I have that on my list of questions as well. She's such a fantastic artist, also such a mystery. It's interesting to me when when I was reading up on your work with her. I remember the first time I had Rupert on here. Not to not to keep bringing him up, but when I yeah. whenever I have a producer on here, I'm always curious to find out who they would like to work with, and not yeah. just 
like I have, this is someone I like, but someone I feel like I could bring something interesting to the table. And Kate yes. was his answer. And right. he told me a story about driving her to, um, to a concert or a session or something and them being in the car together. And I think it's so interesting that you work very closely with her and she was his dream collaboration. So how did this, how did this meeting of the minds with Kate happen for you? Well, the, as I said earlier, uh, some artists, it's difficult for me to divulge too much information, okay. but I can at least follow uh, a certain story here. The, what you mentioned about Rupert there was interesting because um, we, met, uh, we met Kate working on a mix of uh, a live performance she'd done for something called the Secret Policeman's Third Ball in, in the UK. And we were mixing some tracks for Bob Geldof for that show. And uh, I don't know how it happened, but um, I was asked to mix uh, her version of Running Up That Hill that was done with uh, Dave Gilmore and various other musicians. So I think Rupert drove her down to the studio for that afternoon. And so that's the first time we met. But then, you know, there was really nothing. And that was about 86 or 87. I can't remember exactly when. But I was, um, what interestingly uh, happened was that Rupert's uh, former manager was also uh, a ma one of Kate Bush's managers. Okay. And he called me one day and asked me if I'd be interested to do some mixing with her. Of course, I said, absolutely. Um, and so I went off to meet her. And it sort of grew from there. It's, it started very much, I mean, Kate is her own producer. Uh, this is, you know, something that people really should understand. No one produces her. But she was looking for someone to sort of try and be on the same frame of mind for mixing her records. So I, I first worked in uh, 2009, 2010 on the Director's Cut mi album, just doing mixes. And later the same year, I mean, I, I, I worked with her on that and I thought, well, we, we know that there's always long gaps between projects that Kate does. So I thought that was lovely and I'll probably, you know, it'll be ages if, if ever anything yeah. happens again. Within a couple of months, she called me and said, I hadn't told you, but we've got this other project on the go of new songs, not the uh, remakes. And uh, that was uh, 50 Words for Snow. And so I was back working with her and for quite long periods of time. And when that was done, I thought, well, that's, 
you know, once again, it'll be a long time before Kate does anything else. Within a year, she called me up to do a, a mix of a remake of Running Up That Hill for the 2012 Olympics in the UK, where they used the whole of this six-minute remix on the closing ceremony. And so that was pretty good too. And then, you know, the next thing I, I heard... Uh, I read in the paper, like everyone else, that Kate had announced these live shows in 2014 uh, at about the time I was working with the Vicks on <laughs> this new album. And um, uh, I got a phone call because I'd, I'd read and I thought, oh, it's great. Kate's doing some live shows. There won't be anything for me because I don't work live. But I get a phone call saying that she was looking for someone to completely focus on uh, presenting her voice for the live show. And so, uh, on the one hand, I was terrified because I'd never done any live work, particularly with an important artist. But my partner very happily uh, just told me, oh, you have to do it, you know. And I'm going, oh, I can't do it. She said, you have to do it. And thanks to her, I, I, I made the call back to Kate and I got involved on the live show which, again, was a fantastic experience. That had me busy for four months. And then the following year, she announced that she wanted to mix the recordings of the live show. And that was, uh, that was a long project because it was um, mixing. It was having to choose from 21 performances of a three-hour show to make one good album. And uh, so that kept me busy for a few months as well. And she's lovely to work with. Uh, it's something very sort of natural and instinctive. Um, we just got on like a house on fire. Uh, uh -huh. Great sense of humor and all the rest. So. Do you know Wonderful. her well enough to know that when she, you alluded to this a minute ago, that when she, sometimes she goes away for years and we don't hear yes. from her. Um, mm. Do you know what she does in, the, in that time? Do you know if she, if that's a cooling off period where she leaves music alone completely? and clears her head? Or do you know if she works on other artistic ventures? I don't know if she writes poetry or paints or gardens or what? All I can, all I can say is I don't know. Okay. She keeps okay. her life that private, which is okay. magnificent. And she uh, is. I've only seen her a couple of times outside of the recording projects, but um, uh, she's just a very private person and it keeps the mystery going. And, it does. Uh, <laughs> and so I've no idea. Okay. I've no idea. I mean, I had no idea about her doing the live show. She'd obviously been planning it. But uh, uh, just like when I discovered that she'd been making the 50 Words for Snow album at the same time I was mixing Director's Cut. But she manages to keep things very, you know, just to, uh, for the people who need to know. It's all yeah. need-to-know basis okay. with, with her. Okay. And. But she's lovely, and uh, you know I'm very grateful to have had such a wonderful right. experience working. Yeah, with her. she keeps fans like me just on the <laughs> on the edge of our seat, wondering what's next, if anything. Exactly. Exactly. You know? So let me ask you about Fifty Words for Snow because I think that's a gorgeous album.
And I am mm -hmm. very curious um, what it was like to create it. I am curious if, like, were rehearsals involved? How did Steve Gadd, maybe the most recorded, one of the most recorded drummers in history, who brought him in? Who, who, and had he worked, did he have a history with Kate Bush? I don't even know. I'm just curious. And, and the song Misty about, you know, falling in love with a snowman. I'm just curious. I know I just threw three different questions at you, but if you don't mind. So how do well, rehearsals for 50 Words for Snow even happen? Uh, do you know what? I don't know. Okay. I was brought in. I was brought in pretty much to mix it, although I did have a hand in some of the uh, some of the overdubs um, okay. that were done, but I wasn't part of the creative process. Okay. I think, I think uh, with that album, it's safe to say Kate sat down at the piano, recorded the piano, recorded her voice, and then things were added. So, um, so that, that's completely how it worked. But that's about that's about all I can say because I, okay. I really don't know. And, but the creative process of the mixing was all about just trying to create an atmosphere around it. And that's the main sort of thing of my involvement with her is trying to find this feeling of snow. But uh, I can't really go into any details right. about it. Sorry. Sorry. That's but okay. That's, uh, no, that's state. okay. It's the, mis the mystery of it all. It is. <laughs> you know, I think... In getting ready to talk to you, I was reading somewhere about how she wanted, apparently, for the album to sound like a night sky when it's snowing. Because a night sky when it's yeah. snowing sounds different than a yes. night sky otherwise. And I yes. had never thought of that before, but it absolutely does. And well, that album captures that that feeling, that, you know, that yes. ambiance. There is, a, it, there's a lot of very subtle, can't even think of the word at the moment, but it, it is a, a subliminal yeah. stuff going on. That's, that's the best I can say. Yeah. Um, it's just, it, it, it's using what's happening through audio to create a feeling. Yeah. And, and that's something I feel very strongly about in just about every project I do is uh it's always about not it's not just about representing how the instruments sound or and sometimes it's even a question of disguising what the instruments are actually doing to create a feeling in a sound field or whatever it is to um hopefully give some emotion in into what's going on but yeah. uh, not just through the words or through no. the melodies but it's it it is it is all about sound as, if you like, an instrument in its own right. And when I, if we ever get to talking about my own music, which I That's do, coming up to uh, that is very much the whole idea about the sound is as important as everything else. The actual yes. uh, sonic picture. Um, like. I want to ask you about your own music because I think mm. it's beautiful. Um, mm. I am curious. I would say, I, I hope this isn't too reductive. I think, I feel like you're primarily probably known as a mixer. I feel like that might be your, yes. your greatest gift. Um, yes. When I think of mixing and you tell you and you educate me, when I think of mixing, I think of someone 
um, working with the levels. The guitar needs to be this loud versus the drums needing to be this loud. The vo vocals need to be this loud. Am I? Is that about what mixing is, or what are the? That's a positive. What are the best ever at it? So how do you how do you view it? Well, uh, to me, it, it's about creating a picture, uh, and so yes, the levels or if you like, almost like the distance of how you're looking slash hearing at things. But it's also to do with the, um, the environment of the sounds. So either they're close up or they might be in, a, in a, another sound space. And that's what reverb and room sounds are all about. And then the other, the other element, if you like, is, uh, well, no, there's two other elements. One is color. Uh, you know, in the same way that when you look at something on film or in photograph, you're aware of the colours. In audio mixing, it's the tones. So, you know, it's the how much of the frequencies, the treble, the bass, the middle frequencies that makes things uh, interact with each other. Yeah. But then there's another element involved, which is time. And um, that has to do with delay or reverberation or offsetting. Mm -hmm. So mixing involves all of these processes. And then there's the p placing in the stereo image. And like I'm doing now with a lot of five to one, it's w where you place things. And a lot of people will say with Atmos now, it's where you put it in, you know, in the hemisphere. So, so mixing to me is... I know some people think of it, it's, it is just about trying to sort of balance, uh, get a good balance between the instruments and all the rest. And yes, that's very important. Mm -hmm. But it's to do with the placing, not yeah. just in the, in the uh, actual physical sort of placing of the sound, but it's what goes behind and what yes. comes in front and how uh, you're effectively like putting a spotlight on certain yeah. sounds or yeah. putting things back in the shadows. So it's, yeah. it's easy to understand it when you think of it more in those visual terms. Fascinating. Do you ever have a say then in the sequencing of an album that you work on? Because Ooh, I'm wondering, yes. if, I'm wondering yes. if how you mix something influ or influences the sequencing. You want a song of a particular vibe and feel the end of that song to work into the next one that, you know, the flow. So you're involved That's there a, too. This is a really good question about sequencing. In this day and age, it, it, it's, if you like, it's a bit harder because the way a lot of people experience or listen to music uh, might be in streaming or whatever, and they might have their own playlists and tracks. But if, if I go back to every album that I've worked on since, you know, before, even before the fix, they were about creating albums, and the album is uh, has a sequence. There was a, a, a real sort of pressure at some point, probably in the 80s more than any other time, when singles became incorporated into albums. Mm. It's, it's almost like when you go back to the 60s, quite often people would make singles and they'd make albums, and they wouldn't, the singles would not be on the albums. Mm -hmm. So there was like a separate thing. But when they started incorporating singles and hit singles on albums, the uh, record companies and the radio stations would like the, the popular tracks to all be at the beginning. Mm -hmm. 
and or the second track or whatever so they were easy to put on easy to find and also when radio people were trying to choose what to play they might listen to the first couple of tracks on an album and not go much further right. True. so but uh, and that's one thing that i and you know particularly when i was working with rupert and ever since the sequence of an album is very important to me from uh, an experience point of view and yeah. uh, also how things relate to each other and funnily enough in something like every five seconds for the fix uh, i pretty much came up with some ideas about how i saw it being sequenced because we, we these tracks just don't fade out and um then the next track starts yeah. quite often they stop and the next one starts mm -hmm. uh you know it used to be a lot of records faded out mm -hmm. you know and all the rest mm -hmm. i try to avoid that almost on every project i'm on these days so i try and i try and find a way to um relate you quite often to do with you know what key and uh, you know how the music relates mm -hmm. but also uh finding a way to perhaps you know segue and uh, make an interesting experience it works with some uh with some music and it doesn't work with others where you really you wrap up one song and you have to sort of draw a line under it mm -hmm. and then you start the next one but but I think you find, you know, listen to a lot of things on, particularly on this fixed record, that there is, and 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 that. One thing I'll say about the new method of working, what we call in the box uh, with uh, computers, mm -hmm. as opposed to analog times. It, when you're working on a mix, you you do the mix and you have to do it until it's finished, and then you move on to the next song, reset everything. The great thing about um, this method, and I work in Pro Tools with pretty much all um, uh, virtual um, audio uh, um, plugins and okay. treatments like that, it means I can move from one, not just one track to another with minimal uh, setup, but I can move from one album or one project to another. Mm. What I like about that now is that I can be working on all of the mixes of an album simultaneously. Uh, and I, I do experiment with the sequencing from a very early stage because that will then determine perhaps how I end or start tracks. So, so sequencing is a very important thing and I do have a say in it with a lot of artists. Great. And, you know, I try and encourage these things so that an album is an, a, an album listening experience. So how then, you touched on this a minute ago, how then do these things relate to your own solo career? Because Austin, Austin, Ostinato, how am I saying Ostinato, it? yeah. Ostinato and DiCapo are both, I, I love the, well, they're sort of, uh, they're ambient, but they're, it's like Brian, so Brian Eno that said, you know, he wants the music to be pleasant enough to be playing in the background, but not so forgettable that you're not paying attention to what's happening or something. I'm paraphrasing. That's right. I think it's gorgeous stuff. And these songs kind of mutate from very calm, peaceful relaxation pieces to dance beats to sweeping epic sounds. I love it. So how does everything you just say relate to your own solo career?
Well, uh, very. Uh, that's very interesting. I've I've done these, as you mentioned, these two particular projects, um, and both are, if you like, uh, they're related in a sense by using musical terms as their titles. Ostinato meaning uh, actually ostinato is Italian for obstinate, or but it also means repetitive. And ah. uh, ostinato in, is a musical term that often refers to a repetitive phrase. Mm. And uh, so, and da capo is also uh, an instruction used in, in sheet music to instruct you to go back to the beginning, to the top, oh, da, da capo. I'm starting with, if you like, with a concept. Um, in some senses, with ostinato, the repetition and the, the movement, and uh, da capo is... Uh, it it means I'm evoking a lot of memories and, you know, looking back and, and experiences. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I'm trying to do with my own music is to create a feeling out of my own... Uh, the feelings I had with being either in a particular place. And, and there are a lot of those pieces of music are related. Now, it's not like you have to know that about it because it no. is all about just crying, trying to uh, create a feeling in the listener. And uh, also with Da Capo, it comes with visuals, which, you know, again, are a bit more like a light show than a film. Okay. So it's all to do with, again, it's using visual as a sort of tone and dynamic to match what you're hearing. That's why I use a lot of sound effects in the segues, like mm. ambient atmospheres, the sound of uh, the sea or the sound of trains or traffic or people or, um, you know, the, uh, the, the ambience of, the, um, of a cathedral when there's almost nobody in there, but there's a sound. And uh, so there's quite a lot of just sound going on in the background. And that's what it's all about for me. And, and the music is sort of written, imagined in my head. It's like I, have the, I almost have the idea about the spirit of it. It's not that I start just writing, oh, here's a nice tune. How can I bring this into? Mm. It's like a start with the concept of what what the emotion and the feeling is, and then it's a question of creating with my palette of yeah. uh, uh, particular instrument sounds because I'm a multi instrumentalist, and then using sounds found from the natural world oh. along with synthetic sound. Uh -huh. So it's it is it's kind of like using everything. You know, it's using my varied skills on different instruments along with sound as its own instrument if you like and uh and oh. and studio techniques so, so yeah, it's, it's all good. i i love what you've done you touched on something i ha i was going to ask you about here talking about visual uh the visuals mm -hmm. that when i'm reading over your dossier i see that you're you still work with howard jones i'm a huge howard fan i've got some questions about that here in a second too <laughs> and um I believe you're, one of the credits is you doing visuals on one of his tours. It's, I don't, you're, in the, you're a visual artist too? What's going on, Stephen? I don't know what this is. <laughs> well, I'll tell you where it started. Uh, this started in about, the, uh, about 2007. Howard asked me to do a remix of a track 
uh, in surround sound for an album he was putting out called Ordinary Heroes. I think it was no, I think it was called Remixed and Surrounded. Oh, it oh. was it was it was like twelve inch mixes. He got different got people involved. Mm-hmm. He asked me to mix one track for that, and several other people had done these remixes of. Uh, I forget what the album was now, but it, it, it was beside the point. And so these were going to be put onto uh, in 5.1 mixes on a DVD. Mm. And I said to Howard at that point, I said, well, this is all very nice, but wouldn't it be nice to have something on the screen to go with these pieces, even if it's just like a visualizer, you know, a simple thing that's maybe responding or, or reflecting what you're hearing. And he said, um, yeah, it's a good idea. So I wound up doing um, the visuals for that particular, it, it was like an EP in a sense, this mm-hmm. disc that came out. It was four or five remix tracks with visuals done in surround. And um, sort of after that happened, Howard uh, said, we're doing a tour in 2010. So it's just after that, really. He said, we're doing a tour to celebrate my first two albums, Dream Into, uh, Humans Live and Dream Into Action. I saw that. All right. I saw two stops on that tour. Oh, did you? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, um, he asked me to create the visuals for, mm-hmm. the, uh, for every song on those two albums um, off the back of having done that. And uh, again, it was like keeping it fairly simple, but... Um, related to what you see and consequently after we did that a couple a few years after that Howard started to talk about doing um a project called engage which was going to be a live show a book a film and you know all these things and from that we collaborated from the start of the writing he was writing the music and I was creating the visuals for that simultaneously and that was made for very specific um staging of the visuals but that got filmed as well and then we brought out a dvd of that or or i think it's even on apple um uh, itunes movies um and then you know it's happened even further just uh three years ago i was working on his transform tour i did the visuals for that and i actually went on the road uh, in the UK for that one. And that was done with a very special screen. You know, not big scale. This, this is, you know, real sort of close-up stuff. And sort of as a consequence, having done all of that, that's when I moved into sort of doing the visuals for my own performances and things like that. So to me, it's just an extension of the sound thing. Of experiencing it, 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 the music. Yes. Yeah. And... and uh, and uh, particularly when I worked on Howard's um, Transform tour, I was working quite closely with the lighting designer so that what was happening on the screen was related to what was happening with the music. And then we managed to get the lights to even work with that. And, and we used a, a see-through screen that lighting could come through from the back and you know, all kinds of interesting things. Cool. So, it, it, you know, I kind of... The last... 10 or more years have been really interesting for me because I have moved sort of into these other areas, such yeah. as working with surround sound, with visuals, with soundscapes and um, sound installations yeah. and working with a live show with Kate 
and uh, and all of that sort of that's what encouraged me, if you like, to doing my own live show. Yeah. Uh, with oh, so you perform sensor. your albums live? Uh, well, one I've done one performance of each. Okay. I, I did. I in fact, Da Capo was. Uh, done as a live event before the album came out and that just happened just before the uh lockdown and the pandemic so i i had plans but they they just got put on hold but i did a performance in the big room here at real world studios which has a full surround system and a cinematic screen and i did a, a performance in front of 80 people that we also filmed, and some of those tracks are on the uh, DVD that comes oh, with my nice. album. So, uh, uh, so yeah, it's been an interesting sort of moving into other areas, but it is also very music and sound related. Yeah. So. Fascinating. Wow, what an interesting second career, second, third, fourth career. Well, exactly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about uh, Howard particularly because... Um, as I said, I'm a huge fan. I think I've probably seen him live more than just about anybody else. I'm originally from Salt Lake City, Utah. And for oh, whatever reason, he has is, a massive audience there. He yes. Does. <laughs> he does. Um, anyway, I wanted to ask you about working on the Angels and Lovers album that came out in the 90s. Do you remember yes, this at I, all? Uh, well, I didn't have very much to do with it. I, you know, I'd have to actually sort of go back and look at because okay. I think I might have mixed one or two tracks on there, but okay. I, I wasn't that closely involved. Okay. Uh, it, it was because um, Howard, you know, we did those first two albums and the uh, 12-inch album and all of that. And then I got, it was quite a few years later, I got involved with him uh, when he, he made something called Working in the Back Room, which was one of the first albums he did. Yeah. He did sort of in his own studio, really, and he got me in to work on some of that material. And, um, you know, there have just been various things since. Live at Salt Lake City, the video yeah. was actually uh, edited by my partner, Sadia, and uh, we put the uh, DVD of that together. You know, so there have been um, uh, a lot of things, but Angels and Lovers, I, 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 I can't really think of specifically okay. my involvement in that that's actually I, I, okay i know i was involved but, it's uh, <laughs> more working in the back room 
Uh, mm. Is that what it's called? I have that CD yeah. too. I love that CD. Um, yeah. it, it's more about the time frame because one of the hallmarks of Howard to an outsider is his just eternal optimism. All of his songs yes. talk about, you know, positive ideas and thoughts and ways to see the world in a new way. And I'm curious if that Howard was still the Howard you were working with in the mid nineties when his career was not what it used to be. You know, he had had a bunch of hits and by now working in the back room, angels and lovers, some of those other people, there were other albums at the time that weren't really, you know, catching on. They're on kind of independent labels out of Asia or Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm curious when you're working on those, are you still seeing the vibrant, positive Howard that you've always known? Or are you Absolutely. seeing Howard? Really? Okay. I wondered if by that point, he, like most people would have become a little jaded or a little, it's just lost some of the enthusiasm now that his career is in a different place. Well, um, the interesting thing about Howard, obviously he had that real peak uh, sort of mainstream thing and uh, you know particularly when he made it big in the states for, for a moment you know uh, and all the rest but um, after he left you know being tied in with the major label he was really very happy to turn it into as, as quite a lot of people to turn it more into a cottage industry and he's always had real enthusiasm and love for his fans even if it's you know quite a, a a small fan base, so it's not that small, but but um, I never saw him lose any passion or incentive. He always moves on, you know, he's always moving on to new things, but he does balance that obviously with going back and doing some of these retro gigs. And uh, uh, I mean, you know, he's doing some more or less as we speak in the summer. It, it kind of allows him to carry on working on experimental and new things or working as the acoustic trio or doing his solo piano albums or um, uh, doing, you know, he, he, he really loved getting down to doing solo tours just, mm-hmm. you know, because he obviously did these things where he'd be on tour buses with tons of equipment and technicians and band and, you know, he's doing all of that. But, uh, but he also loves the whole personal side of um, just going out and doing a piano show. Talk. He learned to talk to the audience as well because uh, uh, he was quite shy about that in the early days. But, uh, and he's sort of turned that into a thing. And that along with his, uh, I think it's fairly well known that he's a, a practicing Buddhist. And I, I think that he just has the, one of the most positive attitudes to life of anybody and he's also very um loyal to the people he surrounds himself with and um you know so you see a lot of people going along with it and he's had a very fruitful and enjoyable and happy uh, and you know i saw him quite recently and he's going can't believe i'm still still doing it and still loving it you know yeah. so and which is a bit like me you know yeah. I, can't, I can't believe i'm still managing to do this stuff uh so um yeah yeah he's, he's the yeah best. He's, he's 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 really lovely to work with 
I know that he, uh, as I said, I've had Rupert on here a couple of times. I've actually had Duncan Sheik on here a couple of times too. All right, yes. And I know all three of them are Buddhists. Are you a Buddhist? No, no, no. Okay. But but most most of my friends are Buddhists. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, it's it's strange, but I uh, uh, they're lovely people, and of course, um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, so I'm surrounded by them. But no, I, I'm not. <laughs> I, I, there are worse uh, people to be surrounded by. They're all, they seem to exactly. be really peaceful, wonderful people. Oh, yeah. yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Say no more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's it. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're at Real World Studios, right? That's where you work. Yes. Well, it's um, uh, myself and my partner, Dr. Sadia Sadia, who's a, an installation artist and experimental filmmaker and genius um we have been renting an empty space here at real world for almost 10 years now uh we managed to luck our way into it so we're, we're clients we're not part of the organization but but it is a community we're in a separate building from the main uh the main studio which has the uh, is quite sort of well known for having this big um control room space that's very dramatic looking but we're on another building on the same campus and uh there's a rehearsal room next door and a couple more private studios and uh, but it's lovely to be sort of with a great community but also incredibly independent and uh, uh it, that's been one of the wonderful things through lockdown is the isolation and independence of this space that we have here there's just managed that meant that things could go on as usual for us so uh so yeah but it's it's lovely to be if you like associated and involved um yeah. my first i mean i i worked with peter back in the 70s on yeah. his second solo album uh and rupert and myself first came to real world in 1990 while working on a tv special called one world one voice mm -hmm. so we were down here in, in you know in 90 and then you know decades before i ever really came back but uh but so there's a lot of associations and sort of tie-ups with people in this organization it's a lovely environment a nice that's part great. of the country too it's great it's yeah. kind of amazing that uh that a studio still functions as a studio they're just so many of them have closed down because people can can do the studio yeah. thing out of the box or in the box or whatever it was. You said. Exactly. But what this place um, is very good at is it, it's the environment. It's the fact that it has accommodation and catering and uh, a lovely environment. And also it's quite private and peaceful. So you do get certain sort of fairly well-known faces come and work over there and keep themselves completely to themselves, you know, and, and it's just, it, it is a lovely environment. So uh, that somehow has managed to keep it going as a business, as you say, yeah, while so many, it's like the top, the top line studios have managed to survive mm -hmm. and private and small individual studios or people working in their homes mm -hmm. is doing okay. It was the middle ground. It's all the sort of middle studios that were really important. They're the ones that have all dried up and vanished yeah. because it's just not economical anymore. Okay, I mm. want to ask you about another project you and Rupert worked on, and I hope this isn't too personal. I don't mean for it to be. You guys mm. worked with Stevie Nicks. Um, yes. On the Other Side of the Mirror album. Somewhere. 
Yes. And yes. Uh, from in getting ready to talk to you, I was learning about how you guys had sort of decided to kind of, I don't know if go on the road is the right move is the right thing, but I think she hired mm. you to come out to LA and work with her on this album. And the thing that I have a question about is she and Rupert <clears throat> became a couple at that time. And briefly, which, yes, yes. Which leaves you as kind of the third wheel. And I wondered if that was an awkward working situation. Um, no, it was interesting. I mean, there's probably certain things I shouldn't address here. Okay. But, um, what happened was that um, I was actually working with a in the UK mixing uh, an album with a band called Tapau with the mm -hmm. producer Roy Thomas Baker yeah, at Olympic Carolyn Studios. Decker. Great. And um, and I got a phone call from Rupert while I was there, and he phoned. He said, "I'm out in Los Angeles, and I've been asked to uh, produce this Stevie Nicks album. Would you like to? It, you know, would you like to come and join me to do it?" Mm -hmm. And uh, you're right about one thing. It it was a departure because every project we'd really done up to that point had been done, done at Farmyard Studios from like 1980 when I first started working with Rupert on Immunity and The Fix mm -hmm. and various other things. But up till about 1988, all our projects were done there. Mm -hmm. And I developed this very close working relationship with Rupert, but it wasn't really personal. You know, we, we, we just knew each other mm -hmm. really closely in the studio. Mm -hmm. But our lives outside of that, which you know frankly there wasn't much time for anyway because we were so busy but uh, uh and then it was this interesting thing about deciding to move outside and go venture out into the world and you know it, it for me it was it it was actually really exciting and interesting to go and work and this was the beginning of working in people's private homes with rented equipment rather than working in studios so that was exciting but a bit frightening at the same time because i I'd, I'd always worked in professional top studios up to that point i i wasn't aware that there was a connection between rupert and stevie uh until i until i turned up there mm. um and it, frankly it, it 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 didn't it didn't really once again because I, as i say my sort of 
personal relationship with Rupert was trying to sort of stay outside of the... And, and, and yes, it was interesting because obviously I'm working with Stevie and Rupert and all the rest. But uh, um, and that that's the thing that's always um, for me been an important thing in a sense is to try and concentrate on the focus of of what your relationship is and develop it to every possible depth, mm-hmm. but to kind of again not stay involved on the personal side a bit a bit similar in a sense uh, to what i was saying about kate bush you know it's it's having this incredibly close relationship within the work environment and that goes very deep uh but uh the personal life outside is almost like something different yes. and yes that might have been a little bit sort of weird but uh frankly i, I Going and working in Los Angeles was far more of a scary and a weird experience for me than anything to do with that. Just suddenly finding myself in Hollywood and Beverly Hills, <laughs> having come from the countryside in, in yes. England, was, uh, was uh, just a whole new thing. So, yeah, it was it strange was. times. But, and, okay. Yeah. I wondered yeah. what that what that must have felt like at that time. I mean, um, frankly, I, I arrived in Los Angeles, and the first weekend I was there, I found myself going to uh, S- Stevie's brother's wedding. <laughs> really? <laughs> Which was really weird. That is so, weird. Uh, it is weird, you know, because Rupert was going and everyone else involved was going. Okay. So that was strange. Um, it dropped into this other world that it just seemed so alien to me. That is wild. Um, yeah. Okay, a couple more things I want to throw at you. These are funny stories or interesting stories that I read about getting ready to talk to you. Um, mm. I My favorite Rush album is Roll the Bones. And I know right. that that's not most people's pick, but that's my pick. That's the one I like the best. I had mm. never considered until getting ready to talk to you that the rap in Roll the Bones, is that Getty rapping with his voice distorted? never knew that yes 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 it's just the the speed is changed Uh uh-huh so uh and it was uh, that was so divisive that whole thing because it just was meant to be ironic and funny Uh 
and all the rest. And people started really slamming Rashford using rap, you know. I but can it imagine. Was, it, was meant to, it was meant to be humorous. You know, uh -huh. it really was. You know, the, the, Neil was in the studio trying to sort of program a beat and stuff like that with Rupert. And, and uh, they were just having fun with it. So, but yes, that was Geddy. Okay. Yes. I wondered about that. That's so funny. Um, also, and lovely, they were lovely to work with. That's what everything I hear is so true. Yeah. That's so true. Um, also, I wanted to ask you about um, Jethro Tull's Crest of a Knave. I've had um, Ian Anderson on here a few different times, oh, actually. Right. Yes. And I, I saw them in concert for the first time on that tour. Steel Monkey is a song that I really like, but it sounds nothing like the rest of, of Jethro Tull's, you know, output at all. And apparently he was kind of, he's been, he's been an interesting personality for me to interview over the years. I'm more, I bet <laughs> yes. Yes. you don't, you don't really do a lot of talking. You kind of ask one question and he's, he goes off for about an hour. Um, so what was, I, apparently it was kind of an interesting experience working with Ian on that album. Yes, it, it was, it was a little bit weird, really. Um, I had a connection through, uh, the uh, A&R man at the record label who suggested I get involved to do some mixing. And I essentially worked with Ian on that one track, which was used to open the album. And it, it, it seemed to have something to do with them winning a Grammy as well, which was really weird. But, um, but I also mixed a long track for that. Is it called Budapest, uh, which is on the same album, which sounded very i have to say sounded very much like dire straits the whole sort of approach to it and in the end ian decided uh, we spent a couple of days working on these mixes and in the end ian decided to use the one he'd mixed in his home studio himself so i only really had that one involvement with that one track steel monkey um which i guess was trying to bring a bit of the 80s pop sound into whatever one could really describe what Jethro Tull was at that time. As I say, you know, they had been very much a sort of prog band and all the rest, but, but they were, they were sort of moving into this whole dire straits kind of atmosphere at that time. So, uh, I, he was, he was difficult to get to know in a sense. He, um, it was funny. He, he had a very particular, um, approach uh 
he lived relatively close to Farmyard Studios. And he was famously uh, extremely uh, wealthy and owned lots of land and uh, all the rest. But he had people giving him lifts to the studio and he brought packed lunch, even though we had everything. So he had a very, a very strange sort of attitude to life. Uh, and it was all about being very economical. Uh-huh. And yet he was so wealthy. But um, I guess that's probably why he's so wealthy. Maybe that's because why he's, he's wealthy. so economical. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but uh, it, it was an interesting thing. But frankly, it didn't last that long to have a really strong memory about. Okay. Um, okay. But, I can uh, see that. But, you know, I was delighted that it got the, uh, the exposure it did. And again, yeah. it divided people. You know, it did. We were talking about Rush, we were talking about Jethro So Tull. true. <laughs> yeah, Jethro Tull doing synthesizers and Rush doing rap are just two things you would not have guessed <clears throat> either of those artists would have yes. done prior. Prior. Yeah. Um, okay, I wanted to ask you about, do you remember much about working with the Lords of the New Church? Video games train the kids for war Only she can have fashion stores Life orders done the job This is filled where the rich still love Assassination politics Violence rules within our nation's midst Well, ignorance is their power too You only know what they want you to know But television cannot lie Controlling media is most great ads Nuclear politicians' picture show The actors lousy with <laughs> I love yes, them. Goodness, um, um, I've had Brian James on here to them. talk about them. Steve Bader's is, you know, <laughs> one of those what could have been kind of rock stars. What? Do, tell me a Lords of the New Church story if you have any. Yeah, there's a couple of things I can say. I mean, they were outrageous. They're one of the few bands I've ever worked with who came totally in character to the <laughs> studio. They were dressed as goths and makeup. Uh-huh. From dawn till dusk. In fact, I never saw them always in the same outfits. That's how they lived. And Stiv himself was crazy. He was stoned so much most of the time. I just remember the the funniest thing about him. He he most of the time he was very humorous and uh, all this, but he could get quite angry. And he had a Walkman at the time. Mm-hmm. And I remember he was he was trying to listen to something on his Walkman, and it wouldn't play for him. And he was out in the car park and he threw it down on the ground and he stomped on it and broke it and then realized when it smashed open, there were no batteries in it. So, you know, that was the kind of kind of outrageous character he was. Um, I, I have to say it was very enjoyable working with them. I, it, it, I had a few experiences. I was... I suppose I was quite sort of hippie-ish at the time. I had the long hair and the beard and, uh, mm-hmm. 
clothes and things like that. And I got to work with a punk band once, and that was really uh, Sham Sixty Nine. That was really weird because I felt so out of place. But but uh, I kind of felt you know weird amongst these goth people. Uh, uh, but they were actually a lot of fun to work with, and I loved those albums. Um, at the time, I had a bit of a problem because my partner at the time had become quite religious and really disapproved of me being involved um, on those and demanded that I not have my credit uh, on the album. Which So there are very few people who actually know I did it because I was never credited oh. on there, uh, which was, I have to admit, a dumb thing to do. But um, yeah. But pretty... Pretty amazing moment, those two albums I worked on with them. Yes. So, uh, yes. Yeah. I love them. And it was, it, it was, you know, it was very spontaneous in the studio. And uh, it, as I say, it was quite sort of, they were very temperamental and moody, and but a lot of fun at the same time. And there was a lot of hit, hit and miss going on, you know, you had, you had to grab the good stuff while you could. Right. But, uh, great, I could totally see that. Yeah. Okay, I I don't know, Stephen. We've got to we got to about a third of what I what I intended to ask you about. Just so many wonderful stories. Right. I I, I figure um, rather than throwing more at you, I'm curious if you have a favorite story to wrap it up. When you look back over your career, is there a moment or a story or an experience that is unforgettable for you? What is? I'm sure there's been many of them. Ooh, uh, oh, yes, you caught me on the hop there. Um, I'm trying to think. An interaction with a hero or, I don't know, a mix that you're particularly okay, proud yes, of yes. or what? The, the, no, uh, I, can I tell you a funny story? Please, then? yes. Um, yes. I was staying with my partner, Sadia, in uh, the Sunset Marquee. I mean, this has got nothing to do with record making, but it is Fine. relevant. This is good. Um, uh i i was uh we were in the bar downstairs uh, what was it called the whiskey or, or the bar in the basement yeah at on the ground floor on the ground floor at um the sunset marquee having a drink because we we were on our way back from uh australia having worked on something mid 90s this would be and i said i have to go and use the bathroom so yeah, i have to go off and use the bathroom and um when i came back Sadi was chatting to some bloke. Uh, she said, um, oh, Steve, uh, I'd like you to meet Keith. He's the keyboard player. And suddenly I found myself staring at Keith Emerson, who I was a complete huge fan when I was about 16, 17. I even had a picture of him on my bedroom wall. I was oh. a big fan of The Nice and then Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Yeah. I'd seen their first gig at the Isle of Wight Festival and when I was 16 and, you know, all of that. And suddenly, I'd, and it's the only moment when, and, and, you know, she played a trick on me by saying, he's, you know, this is Keith, he's a keyboard player. <laughs> I didn't know who he was. Huh? Oh, Sadia says she didn't even know who he was. Right, oh. okay. <laughs> Keith introduced himself. And, and, and it's the only time I've ever been absolutely speechless. No, I saw him standing in the shadows. Where Come nearer the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. This is Hi, Sardia. Hello. <laughs> yes. Um, you saw I, him? I saw him standing in the shadows. Right. This guy standing in the shadows, and I said, uh, you know, people don't dress like that anymore. <laughs> 
and, he's in and leather, right? Yeah. He was all in leather and long fringes on his jacket and fringes on his trousers <laughs> and leather head to toe. Uh-huh. And and I said, you know, people don't dress like that anymore. And he said, oh, really? And and I said, no. I said, uh, he said, so how how do people dress? I said, well, not like that, <laughs> you know. And and so and I just said, you know, he he came over and we just sat down. We just started chatting. And um, then I came and, back and, and, I, only, and I, I said, hi, I'm Sadi. And he said, oh, hi, I'm Keith. I didn't know who he was. Oh, there but, you go. But, but this one then came back to the table and completely freaked out. It's the only time I've been totally speechless in the presence oh, of, you know, a, a hero. I did. I met lots of heroes and worked with lots of people over the years. Yeah. No, I have no problem. But for some reason. But quite frankly, was... people don't dress like that. <laughs> We wound well, yeah, we wound was, up yes, having a was, lovely chat. For well, the he was he was trying to pull right, <laughs> and, and he thought that he was dressed, you know, to appeal to the ladies. Right, and right. I tried to explain to him that dressing like that, it's not going to work. Ladies, no, <laughs> yeah. isn't going to work. Going to work anyway. <laughs> Thank he, you. He was he was so sweet. He was a complete sweet. Oh, we had a lovely adorable. evening with him. Good. Yeah, it's nice to have a moment like that with a hero of yours. That's a great story. I think it's great. Yeah. But, well, thank um, you, Stephen. But other for than t- that, oh. yeah, I can't think of much else, uh, okay. you know, in That's terms fine. of off the top of my head of anecdotes. Uh, yeah. Stephen, you put out a lot of work in the world that means a lot to me. And we got to some of it on here, not as much as I could have done, but I am so appreciative of all the good you've put in the world. Thank you for being you. Thank you very much. It's been great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Maybe part two. At some I point would happily do a more. part two with you sometime, <laughs> anytime. All right, there you have it, Stephen W. Taylor. He may have to come back on again too, because we barely scratched the surface. There was so much more on my notebook in my notebook that I wanted to touch on that we didn't even get around to. Plus, you probably noticed how he's just a sensitive soul and he's very careful with his words and just a beautiful man. Uh, one of the ones that we didn't get to talk to that I really wanted to was his work on this Suzanne Vega album. It's probably my favorite of hers, Songs in Red and Gray. This is a song called I'll Never Be Your Maggie May. You may know this one. I love it. I love her. And um, I wonder what the story would have been, but we didn't get around to it. So anyway, check out his solo stuff. Check out Kate. But by all means, check out the new Fix album because it's awesome. Now, next week's guest is similar. It's a frontman for one of the great enduring alternative rock bands of the last 45 years that came into prominence in the 80s. They've gone through millions of lineup changes, but this the main guy is the anchor. He's been there since day one. And they have a brand new album out too, and that's who our guest is next week. It's a lot of fun as well. Huge thanks to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Makiewicz, for everything. Thank you, buddy. Folks, you can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there, or you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. All right. Thanks, everybody. We love you.